was feeling, wow, I've just been able to overcome so much and create a beautiful life for myself. But I think what I was later realizing was I wasn't truly successful yet because I, I hadn't been able to really deal with that history and deal with that past. When Mal Ren Corbin got to college, the bucolic, peaceful campus seemed not only like a haven, but a world away from the turbulence of her life in post-industrial Worcester, Massachusetts. As she set out to find success in the professional world, there was always a feeling that perhaps she hadn't tucked that history far back enough and she would be found out for who she'd been. Once she decided to face the trauma in her past, she was able to recognize that her full story was worth telling. Find out how looking back and bridging the distance can sometimes show how far we've come on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. Today I'm here with Mal Ren Corbin and we are going to talk about fledging from a nest and letting those wrens fly and how we tell that story. So Mal, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you, Leslie. Thanks for having me. It's um, It's been so fun listening to this podcast, and it's a real honor to be here with you today. Well, I know you are a good listener, and so this is no surprise. When I get together with my guests, I ask two questions, and they are these. When we were in college, who were you? And when we were getting ready to leave, who did you think you would become? Wow, it's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. When I first landed at Dartmouth, I like Dartmouth was just such a new world for me. Uh, much of my early life is I would describe as really turbulent, like just a lot of tough dynamics. Um, I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is a post-industrial town that frankly is riddled with a lot of a lot of challenges that you see in urban areas so poverty addiction violence homelessness and my family the Ren family was no exception to that we frankly fit in really well there uh, so you know navigating a really complex early life and thankfully you know, I, I somehow was able to overcome a lot of that with the help of a lot of people, of course. But I it was a dream come true to land at Dartmouth. Like this was such an opportunity, of course, to create a really different life for myself. And it was an exciting time. But it, I was also just terrified as all hell. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you land in this really beautiful, idyllic place, and you're surrounded by just brilliant people. And at the same time, it was really intimidating. You know, you, you also had a lot of wealth, and a lot of people that grew up quite differently from me. And, and so I, I very much had this feeling, like imposter syndrome, right? Like, I don't know if I belong here. I, I feel incredibly lucky to have landed here, but are they all going to be able to tell that I'm this outsider and I'm not like the rest? Uh, yeah, so I, I would say that's maybe who I was at the start of my Dartmouth career, for sure, for starters. Yeah, well, you had really overcome so much just to put the foot in the door. Already, on one hand, yes, you have the imposter syndrome, but on the other, it's like, I am a huge success. Like, wow. 
from that to this, different worlds, and navigating, of course, how you straddle those worlds is something different, and maybe we can talk about that in a minute, but when you were progressing through, like, where were the places that you plugged in where you said, okay, I belonged in this world, this other world, I I still kind of do, but here, I belong in these worlds, and how did you get there? Yeah, I, um, a lot of trial and error, you know, um, definitely my my sorority, Delta Gamma, and the sisters there. Just, I think having the ability to make those close one-on-one connections with people, so that you know you could know them as the humans that they were, and vice versa, as opposed to, oh gosh, this this person grew up so much differently than me, and so that was that was really powerful and and it was also a really interesting time too because even though i you know was rooted in this world that i was looking to escape i also didn't feel like i belonged there either and so it was this really you you framed it beautifully straddling really two really different worlds where i didn't feel like i squarely fit in in either one anymore but yeah, I would definitely say those close friend connections f- were just imperative and really paramount for helping me feel like I had a place there at Dartmouth. Yeah. And so yeah. you and I intersected a little bit because you were a geography major. I was modified. <laughs> so I, you know, I think we had a few classes together. What was that like? And I mean, I don't think there were many that thought I'm going to be a geographer, but how did that ground kind of the <laughs> things you're interested in and, and what you thought next steps could possibly be? Yeah. Oh my gosh. What a uh, geography like that just special place in my heart yeah. because let's be honest, I took that first geography class thinking, okay, this sounds interesting. Hopefully it it shouldn't be too difficult. And, um, you know, I really focused on the social science side of geography. And I just distinctly remember studying the sense of place. And wow, did that just, could I relate to that Mm -hmm. concept? Mm -hmm. As I'm guessing we all can. And that just really touched home for me, that sense of place, Uh, growing up in a place like Worcester and the deep emotions that are tied to that um, and then sense of place that you have in a place like Dartmouth and and in Hanover. I I just fell in love with the topic of geography, um, particularly from a social science perspective and um, just I can't say enough about it. And I I know we haven't touched on this, but... um, just launching this this memoir that I've put out definitely um, honed in on on just that the topic of sense of place and my time at Dartmouth and just how powerful those emotions can be and that that coursework just really just touched a, a nerve for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I do mm-hmm. want to talk to, to you about this memoir because as we're recording this, it is just <laughs> hot off the presses and I'm so excited for that. But let me do a little bit of tying what happened between college and this memoir. That's a long time, I actually hate to say. Uh, but what's coming up for me, though, with this geography and sense of place is it wasn't as though you were escaping home. You were just getting this new new home and a, a new slice of life and everything. But that sense of place still stuck with you because right after college, you remained in the home area. You know, you're back to Massachusetts and that's going to... Was, was that 
did you just know, like in my soul, this is who I am. I'm going to stay here. I didn't, I didn't know that. I think, you know, for me, I was in those early years really focused on reinventing Mm. myself and just trying to create success and trying to achieve, you know, what I thought success would look like. And so for me, it was a lot of frankly, shunning that history and that past and and really trying to create distance from it. And, you know, I think it's, it wasn't frankly, until much later in life that I was feeling to your earlier point, wow, I've just been able to overcome so much and create a beautiful life for myself. But I think what I, I was later realizing was, I wasn't I wasn't truly successful yet because I I hadn't been able to really deal with that history and deal with that past and get comfortable or as comfortable with it as you can and frankly own it as a part of who you are and to feel proud of that too. Yeah, so I I did ultimately come back to Massachusetts and... um, complex feelings there. Uh, I I didn't go back to Worcester per se, but even just being in Massachusetts, I just, and I described this in the book, like there's a, for me, a distinct feeling as you're coming down the Mass Pike and you cross from Connecticut, for example, into Massachusetts, there's a distinct shift in that sense of place feeling for me anyway. Um, And that is both nostalgic and a a good feeling. And it's also like, brace yourself and (laughs) hold on to your seat. (laughs) I know that feeling. We're going back in various places. Yes, yes. All right. So you do kind of take that step after college into a professional realm. You're doing various business type things. And Exactly. You're you're having successes, and in that whatever whoever gets to define what that looks like, you're doing them. You're checking them off. So when did it feel like the success and sense of wholeness really needed to be rooted in this looking back and dealing with the distance yeah. you've created? And how long was that percolating? And and what's the process to becoming a memoirist? <laughs> Internal and external. I think so many of us, and and this is the irony of, of, frankly, feeling like I was so different when I landed at Dartmouth. The reality is there are so many people who have their things, right? And I'm learning that now as I've talked more and more about this. It's, frankly, pretty awesome to have people then approach you and say, hey, I had this going on in my life and they're opening up and telling their story. I I love that so much. But it honestly, Leslie, wasn't until I was about 40 years old when I realized I, I really, I need to, I need to tackle this. Um, When I first got married, 27 years old, I could not wait to change my last name. I couldn't get rid of Ren fast enough. Again, it was just shedding all of that darkness. And fast forward all this time, you know, now I'm 49 years old. And as I took on this process of writing the book, honestly, I I still, I think, was dealing with it on dealing with all of those memories on a very surface level. And I thought, 
you know, I've been told over the years, oh, you're so well adjusted and you'd never know. And, you know, look at the life you built for yourself. I I hear you with trying to shed one identity so that you can kind of get rid of some stories and all of that, but recognizing those stories are going to come back and I'm going to have to deal with them. Other people yeah. might, and maybe you did this as well, but, you know, deal with those feelings and and start processing that through journaling or therapy or whatever. When does somebody say, I'm going to kind of air all of this in a more public fashion? Yeah. For me, and, and certainly over the years in talking with people, people make comments, and this is not unusual for a lot of folks, I think, where, gosh, you should, you should really think about writing a book. And you never, you know, it's Okay, that 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 sounds neat. But, you know, what's funny about having those feelings that I had back in Dartmouth where, oh my gosh, I, I don't know if I belong here. I'm kind of sneaking in a bit under the radar, it feels like. I had those similar feelings working in the corporate world post-college. Like you're, you're wearing a suit and hopping on a plane to meet with clients and you're talking about the challenges of Americans not saving enough for retirement and you're having fancy dinners and having conversations about where do you summer. It just, again, it was another scenario where I was feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm, uh, do they, they don't know. Um, and so it was that awkward, it was an odd balance, like trying to just fit in somewhere and blend in and not be known. But at the same time, this deep desire to be known and to be understood. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think ultimately, just that wanting to be understood, you know, took over and overpowered that, that feeling of wanting to just blend in. Okay, so any book, a novel, uh, you know, treatise about physics or whatever, the subject matter expert is having to do all this research. Your research is like internal, what am I not, you know, you said you were shunning it, like what have I forgotten? What do I not want to deal with? You're having to do that. What does a writing process for that look like? And, you know, what are all the markers of being an author in its own right, but with this layer of Ooh, this is big and emotional. What does that look like? It, yeah, much more emotional than I anticipated, which sounds silly, right? Because you're really <laughs> digging in. But again, all of those stories and memories were very surface level for me. And if I'm being transparent, I did I did work with a professional writer. I knew I had a story to tell, and I really wanted somebody who could help me just how do we pull this together in a way that's really powerful and I underestimated what that process would look like it was over 40 plus hours of recorded interviewing where you know I would tell the stories and and she would stop me and say now hold on a moment in that moment you know what what do you see in that room what are you hearing what do you smell and I was like, oh, no, <laughs> I, was, I was not prepared for that. And so it was a much deeper uh, process and experience uh, than I had ever thought it would be, including I did a lot of investigative work, you know, getting in touch with Department of Social Services mm-hmm. and gathering reporting about, you know, 
what are the facts behind what happened? I have my memories, but what are the facts? And frankly, that was, that was earth shattering for me. Yeah, because yeah. they don't always, they're not the same, right? Yeah, even at memories from being 12 and 13 years old, when you you think, of course I remember those details. Um, but it is, I know you, you hear this a lot, people who suffer trauma, perhaps suppress memories, completely normal, of course. I never saw myself as that. And so then to be reading facts in black and white from a time that I thought I so clearly remembered was, oh my gosh, like my brain had been trying to protect me too. Yeah, well, that and a layer of maybe those facts were exactly as you, you experience them exactly as the the letter of the law or the, the paper or the report says, but the processing at the time, your your lens was different than a 49-year-old's lens who understands legal or what should happen or normative processes or whatever, that it's just different. You're you know, so right. It's not to say that you were wrong. It's just you had a different perspective then. For sure. For sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. Um, yeah. So what did you learn about yourself through that process? Do you have more kindness toward that younger person? Do you have more kindness toward the place? Do you have anger and bitterness? I don't see that in your face or your demeanor, but you know, what, what were the things that came up in this for you? Uh, yeah, I think for every anybody, relationships are so dynamic and fluid and constantly evolving. And, you know, so I've certainly have had periods where uh, you know, had anger toward my parents, and, and that still continues to shift. Sometimes one parent will bear, <laughs> will have to bear more of the anger than the other, and and not necessarily for any good reason. I think, I think I've always known this, but um, what's important for me to remind myself of is that m- my parents made terrible, horrible decisions. Like they were. Frankly, they were neglectful, uh, but they weren't monsters. Like they weren't mean-spirited people, and so you know, I, I definitely try to keep that in check. And um, yeah, but but those 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 feelings are are definitely fluid, and I suspect that they'll continue to be so, especially as now I put this memoir out there. This is it's a different. Phase, I think, you know, having to interact with those memories in a different way than I ever have before. Yeah. So and again, here uh, yeah, here we go. <laughs> and again, to my to my earlier part about kind of perspective and context that you, know, you are a mother now. And so you recognize <gasps> that you're doing your best given competing priorities and really complex things out in the world, right? So that must be another That's layer right. for you. Oh, it really is. And timely topic because my my sweet boy quote unquote boy Jack turns 20 years old today and um, that's right and there's that there's something so powerful in being a parent of course in and of itself but in the wake of trauma you you see those events through a very different lens now and trying to envision your own child experiencing those those events and it's um, yeah, it's that's a wild ride in and of itself. But just 
the feeling of wanting to protect him from any and all potential evils, which obviously is not not realistic, but um, it's it's hard too because often we swing the pe- pendulum a little too far from where we had had it, you know. And so I'm sure there's this balancing act now that you've really taken stock of where you maybe wanted life to go. It didn't go that way. I'm going to do that for my kid, you know, be on the yes. other side for for my kids. Oh, entirely true. The the amount of overcompensating that happens <laughs> over here. I have to keep that in check too. I mean, when he was a child, he could have asked me to have a pet alligator and I would have said, "Let's go pick out a nice collar." For <laughs> yes, let's do that. Right. But, yeah. Right. So I'm going to ask a broad question and then we can get to specifics. So, you know, one of my fancy questions that I ask at the beginning is who did you think you would become? So who did you think this or what did you think this book would become? And has it lived up to that or has it done something else? I know you're at the beginning of kind of birthing it out into the world. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, gosh, what a complex journey it is to put it out into the world, you question, like, is my story worth telling? Um, You're looking on some level for validation. You want to make sure you put something of good quality out into the world. And frankly, I love the idea of, again, creating space for people to connect, be able to relate, and to be able to talk about their own stories. And I love being a safe space for that. Um, so I think those are some of my my hopes for it. It's really early in the process, but I think even taking the leap of putting it out there, just that initial step before anybody even reads it, I just have been amazed at the support that everybody has shown me. Uh, the response has just been overwhelmingly positive and warm and supportive, and particularly from the Dartmouth community, by the way. So I just am I'm so grateful. Well, it's because all of us are like, first of all, it's hard to put out a book. Secondly, <laughs> it's hard to own up to some of this, like deep digging that you have to do and the stamina it takes to do a book and the hard the hard work it's just it's incredible it's incredible thank you and you have another life going on right you still have a job and you still have a family and you still this is just and yeah yes and in full transparency i started this process almost six years ago so it's definitely been you know fits and starts and yeah but i definitely underestimated too you know i think when i first started i thought oh this will i'll have it published in a year wrong (laughs) (laughs) it probably took four years just to write it and then you know you you finish with your draft manuscript and you think okay let's go find a publisher and (laughs) that'll be easy gosh and that you know that was a whole nother year and then once I started working with a publisher here it is it's been almost another year so I just what a what a process but yes I do I very much have a full-time job that I'd call demanding these days. So this has actually been a really great passion for me to to focus some energy on, um, yeah, this labor of love. So is there kind of a a story within the story that you would like to share that you want people to kind of walk away with? Or do you want to just have me send people to read it? 
Hmm. I feel like I maybe tackled the like the yeah. core hope yeah. and um, what I hope people will also walk away with is that we're all entitled to a, a happy, healthy, beautiful life of our own. And, you know, you, sometimes you just, you really have to fight for that. But as a starting point, you have to believe that you deserve it and and demand it a bit. And so I just would, I would love for everybody to kind of take that recognition for their them, their own selves, if you will, and claim that if they don't have it already. Yeah. Well, I'm delighted that you kind of claim that your story is worth telling and that you've done the hard work for the benefit of all of us that we can read and I'm sure have it spark other things for our own stories. So thank you so much for all of this work and for being brave and for sharing and for sharing with us. Thank you, Leslie. It's been a pleasure. That was Mal Ren Corbin, who's had a full career in the financial services industry with experience in Fortune 500 companies, deepening client engagement, and cultivating high-profile client relationships, particularly with C-suite executives. Her successes there have tended to be shadowed, though, by deep-seated trauma from her youth that she's finally addressing in her newly published book, Raising Wrens, a memoir. The book captures stories of her family's life in post-industrial Worcester and how, unlike her brother and father, whose lives were cut short there, she was able to leave and create a different life. Comparing and contrasting the Wren family's behaviors with those of their avian namesake, the memoir touches on trauma and the strength it takes to fly. Look for Raising Wrens with two ends wherever you buy books. Links are also in the show notes. We're so grateful that our guests bring us along on their journeys, past and present, each week. And we thank you, listeners, for coming along every week with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, on Roads Take Off.